Everybody excited about shopping? You know, it's, it's interesting how, like, like, one of the best stories that we have in our Bible, like, brings people way down. Like, Christmas is here. People are like, oh. Like, Christmas. Not like, it's not like shopping is here. It's Christmas is here. And so this Advent, what's here? <laughs> this Advent, we're going to do something a little different. We are going to enter into, hey, you know, things are a little off today, okay? So, so I mean, right now, the, 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 the universe is, is scratching its head. The Brinkleys are on this side, which, which is throwing me way off. And the Caviellos are like over here. So it's, I'm a little, so, so just, so be nice. It's a God thing that the universe is off? Okay, all right. It's a God thing. All right, so anyway, where was I? Um, if you're giving an offering, that have it. No, I'm sorry. Um, Advent. We're going to do something called the Advent Conspiracy. And we're going to start um, right around, well, Advent. Imagine that, which is the last week of this month. On the 29th, is Advent begins. Uh, Christmas is on a Friday, I believe, this year. And so we will celebrate Christmas our Christmas celebration on the 27th, but we also do our um, Christmas Eve service here on what day? Christmas Eve 24th. Excellent, excellent. You're with me? Good, <laughs> good. Now the Advent, and, and we're going we're gonna to do four, maybe five. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but at least four. We're going to look at Advent this year about, you see, when, when, you, mention, when you mention the idea of shopping, and Christmas, people, you, you are like most of you anyway, I think, are Christian Jesus followers. And when I say, everybody ready for Christmas, you're like, oh, that, that shouldn't be our response to Christmas. See, we have this story that's one of the most amazing stories like ever told. Like this guy named God who created everything, decides that he loves his creation so much and he wants them back so bad that he sends his son to live among them, to show them how to live and to redeem everything that some enemy is trying to take away. That's, that's the Christmas story. And so it shouldn't be oh, Christmas. And so we're going to try to change that this year. And I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to do it 100%. I think this is the beginning of years of creating a paradigm shift in how we deal with Christmas. And so we're going to talk about this Advent. We're going to talk about how do we and what's it mean to worship fully during Christmas. We're going to talk about spending less during Christmas. We're going to talk about giving more during Christmas. And we want to talk about how we can serve the least of these, the poor, the brokenhearted, the people that Jesus actually came to love on and to build up. And so that's going to be our focus this year during Advent. And I might start a week early because sometimes I'm long-winded and, and I need an extra week. Um, but we're definitely starting by the 29th. So begin to prepare your hearts for this uh, Advent conspiracy. This is something that's, that goes on throughout the world right now. It started a, a bunch of years ago. Of course, everything cool starts on the West Coast in Seattle, but so up. And, and we're going to tweak it a little bit because we're East Coast, and they're like from a different country over there, really. And, and we're going we're gonna to kind of make it our own thing and what we want to do with it. But begin to release that, oh, 
dread over Christmas. We have the greatest story ever told. And that's what we want to celebrate this year. The greatest story ever told. It has nothing to do with presents and shopping and accumulating stuff and buying that sweater for Uncle Albert, who you know will never wear it, but you have to get him something. And it's nothing to do with, you know how we, at Christmas, we love on certain levels. Like the people closest to us, we spend the most money on. And then it trickles down from there to the people that we don't see. You begin to re-gift from last year. Sometimes you'll get, you'll get gifts this year and you'll go, oh, this is so getting re-gifted for next year. And you put it away. You don't even open it. You keep it in the original wrapper, maybe with the price tag that's half picked off so nobody can see it. And, and we want to change the focus of Christmas this year. And we want, to, we want to try to begin to do something different to tell the story the way it was originally told. All right? So begin that dialogue in your own hearts and release the dread of this season and embrace the joy that it really brings. Can Christmas still change the world? All right, John chapter 6. I'm going to pray and we're going to get in it. Uh, God, we are here, your people gathered. Uh, we want to thank you for uh, this place. We want to thank you for the opportunity to get together and um, come together as a community and to love on each other and to laugh with each other and to um, hear your word. God, we all bring stuff into this place. We bring um, heartbreak and heartache. We bring joys and, and mountaintop experiences. God, you know where each one of us is this morning. And so I pray that you would meet each one of us right where we are through your word. Thank you that you don't give up on us, even when we want to give up on us. And so, God, this morning, I pray the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, John chapter 6, we kind of uh, started in there. Now, there's this little cool story, right, in, the, in, the, in John chapter 6. It's about Jesus, and he's walking on the water, right? So the boys, he, he dismisses the boys. He says, listen, I'll, I'll catch up with you guys later. And, and John puts this, this little story in about Jesus walking on the water. Now, it, he puts it there because, well, I would have to think that um, it happens. And so he just kind of adds it. But, but, but all of the other signs that he records, this one lacks the, the spiritual connection or the, the spiritual depth uh, that, that the th- other ones that he wants to try to get across to us. So there's really not a, a huge lesson in Jesus walking on the water as it is to John. Now, it's the fifth sign that he will record in, in his writings. It does point to Jesus and his divinity and his power. There weren't a lot of people walking on water back in those days. So this is kind of a special thing that he puts in there. It shows the, the intensity of the experience. I mean, the boys are in the boat. They're, they're, the wind is blowing. And, and it says that they were frightened. But they weren't frightened because of the wind of the waves. These are seasoned fishermen. They're frightened because they see this dude walking on the water towards them, so it freaks them out a little bit. It's the supernatural experience, but other than that, there's, there's not just, just a whole lot. So I meditated for hours and, okay, maybe minutes on this whole story, and I came up with a spiritual lesson. So the boys, right, they, they're rowing, and, and they see Jesus, and they freak out, and Jesus says, chill, it's me, don't worry about it. We'll pick up the story in chapter 6, verse 21, watch this. 
This is why you pay me the big bucks. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. So, so they're freaked out. Jesus says, it's me, relax. And then they are willing to take him into the boat, and immediately they reached the place they were going. And, and you see, for us, when we get over our fear of Jesus... And finally accept him. The boat is a metaphor for our life. We accept him into our life. We are immediately to that place where we should be heading. No, huh? Yeah, it was pretty cheesy when I was practicing. <laughs> I was reaching, man. I was just like, ah. Was it? Yeah? Was I, I have a great week. Joy box is in the back. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, so here's this story, and, and, and Jesus walks on the water, but it will set up. This story does set up what's going to happen on the other side of the pond. Jesus is going to launch into a teaching and reveal some very deep, deep truths about himself and God. And he is going to grow his church much smaller. John chapter 6, verse 22. Let's go there. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with the disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Anybody remember the prayer? Never mind. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So this crowd that Jesus just fed, a crowd of 5,000 men, maybe 15,000 people, they were very determined to make Jesus king. In fact, they, he knew what they were going to do. And he kind of like, he kind of like, you know what, I'm, I'm going I'm to step away. I'm going to head up in the mountain. I'm going to chill out a little bit. Let these people calm down. This was not just a passing fad for them. This was not just a few people that said, hey, maybe he'd make a really good king. This is a crowd that had seen Jesus and what he was doing and said, this guy, this guy can actually maybe do something about our uh, oppression from, from Rome. Maybe he can free us. Maybe he can restore some, some national pride back into our nation. And so they want to make him king. And being made king is a big deal. Just like it would be a big deal today if we decided that we were going to make rich king so he can take over the government. Woohoo! And and you're all like, "Uh uh-huh. And and so so this is a big deal. This is no little thing that these people want to do. And this is what the crowd had in mind. And so it's not surprising that when they get up in the morning, because they have just been fed, they desire to find Jesus. They still have this idea of making him king. And they're puzzled by the fact like, okay, well, where'd he go? There was only one boat. He didn't get on the boat. And nobody would really travel during this, this day and in, in, in age, especially at night, because it'd be dangerous and you can get thumped on by some criminals or thugs or something like that. So where did he go? And so they, they, they start and, and the crowd goes on the move and they decide they're going to go to Capernaum. They're going to look for him. And what's interesting, when they finally catch up with him, they, say, they call him Rabbi. Rabbi, when did you get here? Which is, which is a word for, for teacher. See, I still believe that this, these people have no real idea who Jesus is. They have no idea what he's all about. They call him rabbi. 
from 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 prophet to king the night before to to teacher. They're confused over who this guy is. One day he's a teacher. Next day he's the prophet, the prophet. Next day he's the would-be king. Eventually he's going to be a criminal. Now he's a, he's a miracle worker. This crowd, after seeing all that he's been doing, has no clue who he really is or what he's really about. And I am so glad that people today are so different from people back then. Verse 26. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Very truly, Jesus says again, listen up. I'm on to you. I know what's going on here. I know what you're thinking. You're not here because of the signs that I, I did in front of you. In fact, it would be better if they were. Listen, faith based on miracles and faith based on actually seeing physical evidence. I mean, it's not the best faith, but at least it's a beginning of something. And these people, they didn't even have that. They are just there because Jesus filled their bellies. Jesus was able to give to them something in the physical, something in the material, and that's why they followed him. And Jesus calls him out on that. You see, this whole idea of materialism, it is, it is generations old. 2,000 years ago, people were in it to see what can they get out of it. The me generation is not a new phenomenon. It's something that's been around a long, long time. It's nothing new. In fact, it began in the garden when Satan said to Eve, you know, if you eat this fruit, your, your, your eyes are going to be opened. You are going to get something you don't have. You are going to get something new. You're going to get something more. You are going to finally get that upgrade you deserve. And what does she do? She got it. <laughs> and then what does Adam do? Blames her like any good husband would. <laughs> and so this idea of, of what's in it for me, this idea of materialism has been following us for thousands and thousands of years. And so it is with this crowd. They have followed Jesus because they are caught up in the physical. They are caught up in the materialistic. What is in this for me? They have a desire to have their desires fulfilled. Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So Jesus starts talking to him. Listen, people, you are focused on the wrong thing. You are focused on the wrong stuff. Don't work for food that can spoil. The fish and the bread, yeah, maybe not the best, but eventually it's going to go bad. Don't work for something that can spoil, but work for something that can endure to eternal life and the eternal life that I am going to give you. But there's a confusion about what Jesus is saying. There's a confusion about what he's offering to these people. They ask, well, well what are the things that we need to be doing? What are the works that God actually requires us to do. 
Now, this is based in their, their Jewish tradition. They have 600 and something laws that they have to follow. And they would always be discussing what laws are the most important ones to follow. Obviously, we can't get them all, in, especially in one day. But how do we figure out what ones that God thinks that are the most important? And how do we follow those laws? And the conversation between rabbis would take place. What are the most important laws? And sometimes they would, put, they would stand on one foot and the laws that you can repeat on one foot, those would be the most important. I mean, there are all these whacked ways to figure it out. And so this is coming from a place of them understanding, well, we have to figure out what does God really want from us? What is, what is the work of God? But they continue to miss the point. In part, they're missing that this idea of eternal life that Jesus wants to give them is it's a gift. It's free. There, there's nothing they have to work for. But Jesus, and they're missing this, he's also inviting them into work. And so there's this gift And there's this work, but the work will have a very, very different focus. See, this is not about earning from God. This is accepting from God and then beginning to do the work. Now, this is something very hard for us to understand, I think, in our culture as it was back then. Um, This idea that, that our salvation is a free gift. Okay? Because, and, and you know, we have the Ephesian passages and we know it, we know it in our heads, you know, um, we're saved um, by grace through faith and it's not of works so nobody can be bragging, oh, look at me, look at what I did. We get that, we understand that, but we still have a problem with really, really understanding it, really, really living it because we are a culture that works and earns, that earns and works. And we're taught this from a very early age. But earning is our way of life. As children, we we tell them you have to earn good grades. You have to work to earn good grades, to earn a good grade on that test, to earn a good report card. You earn your degree when you go to college. And then you work hard in your job and you earn your, your, uh, hopefully earn a promotion. And you earn money at your job and hopefully you invest that money so you can earn interest. And we try to earn people's love. And we try to earn people's approval. Do you know how many people have sat across from a counselor because they just worked and worked and worked and could not earn the approval of that person that they so desperately wanted it from. See, sometimes when we work hard and we don't earn, it has very negative effects on our psyche. We teach children that, 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 that if you behave and you follow the rules, you will earn privileges. It's, it's like I have this, this beautiful young girl who lives in my home and her job is to do the dishes And on those days where she fails to do the dishes again, she she looks at me and says, Oh, Father, you are mean and unloving. And you have failed to remember what it's like to be a child because she is engaging consequences for not doing the dishes again. And so we teach our children... That you earn things. If you do this, you will earn this. If you don't do this, you will earn something, but you won't like that earning. And so it's a part of our life to earn, to work. And we bring that into our faith. That we need to earn God's love. We need to earn our salvation. It's like like getting a birthday gift. A really nice one. And then you figuring out how in the world are you going to work to earn this thing. You don't earn a gift. 
And there has to come a point in time in our lives when we stop trying to earn what we already have. And I say that over and over again, but we all need to hear it over and over again. There needs to come a point in time in our lives where we have to stop trying to earn what we already have been freely given. But saying that, this whole faith thing, this whole belief thing, this whole following Jesus is work. And it takes work. They asked, well, what are we supposed to do? What are the things, what is the work of God that we're supposed to do? Jesus is like, oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to do nothing. Just chill, hang out, be happy. No, no, Jesus will say, oh, the work of God is to believe in the one he sent. Now, he will change it from works, plural, to a work, singular. The work of God is to believe in the one he sent. Believing in Jesus is work. And I find that to be a very interesting idea. This is not about God being interested in you filling up your attaboy jar or your attagirl jar or all your good deeds jar. Oh, look what I've done. I'm, I'm working. I'm, I'm work. No, this is, this is nothing about that. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. Did you ever consider believing in Jesus' work? Has that ever really crossed your mind? Now, the, the work is defined as um, an activity in which one exerts strength or faculties to do or perform something or sustain physical or mental effort to overcome obstacles and achieve a result. So that is the definition of work. Believing in Jesus requires work. Some statistics say that up to 80 to 85 percent of Americans living in America believe in Jesus, believe who he is, believe that he was a son of God, believe that he came and died for our sins. But I will guarantee you that there are not 80 to 85 percent of all Americans actually following Jesus. Here's another one. Satan believes in Jesus. He believes that he is the son of God. He believes that he came to rescue us. He's aggravated about it. He can't do anything about it, but he believes in Jesus. And I wonder what that gets him at the end of the day. Nothing. And so this is not about us earning God's love, earning God's forgiveness, earning salvation. This is about the work of belief in Jesus. And so what does it look like? I mean, what does work, the work of belief actually look like? Turn to second Kings. Interesting little story about a general, a Syrian general who is, has leprosy. Second Kings chapter five. I'm going to start reading in verse one and we're going to bounce through this story a little bit. Now, Naaman, the, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right, so little grace. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Aram, he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So here's this, 
this valiant guy, this soldier, he's a, he's a bigwig, he's a general, he has leprosy. And he finds out that there's this prophet in Israel, this guy by the name of Elisha. And people are like, man, you got to go see this dude. He can clean you up. He's pretty good that way. And so he decides, yeah, that's a good idea. He gets this letter. He goes to the king. The king's like, what do I look like? I, I can't do it. And Elisha's like, oh, no, no, no. Send him over here. I'll handle it. And so he goes to... Um, he, he goes to the prophet and he's expecting this big pomp and circumstance thing. He's a man of valor. He is a general. He is high up on the totem pole. He's expecting something really cool to happen with Elisha. But look what the story says in verse 9. I'm sorry, I'll start reading verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horse, horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Nahum went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure my leprosy. Aren't the other two rivers in Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He gets ticked off. He's expecting this really big like, whoa, and angels come down. He doesn't even get to see Elisha. Elisha's like, yeah, um, he sends the messenger out, tells him, handle it. And so he gets the message and he's just like, well, how can this guy treat me like a common person? And he goes away mad. But his, but his servants are like, dude, don't go away mad. What if he said like something really, really cool and huge? Would you go do that? Well, how much better and simpler is just go dunk yourself in the water and see what happens. And so he does. And he gets cleaned and he gets cured. And he's cleansed from this leprosy. And now this general has been faced with a new reality. He has been faced with, with something new that has entered into his life. He will find himself struggling with, with putting bits and pieces of his old life, the way he used to live, together within the context of this, this new life. This new reality that he's living. Something has changed for him. Something has drastically been changed in him. He now believes that there is only one God. The God of Israel. Yahweh. And at this point in his life, he has worshipped false gods. He has been an idolater. And worshipping gods that have just been made up. But now he has come to the place of recognizing that there is one true God. And he's experienced this one true God. Look what he says in verse 15. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And with this revelation, he will begin the work of belief. Interesting enough that he doesn't earn his healing. He was worshiping false gods. He just goes and gets healed. And after his healing, after the, the receiving of this gift, he begins to believe. 
Now, for him, it'll take shape in, in, in two steps. Um, the first one is, is the idea of, of worship. How is he going to worship a god in a country that worships false gods? How is he going to pull this thing off when he goes back to his own land to worship Yahweh? And for him, he wrestles with it, and he asks, can I just bring some dirt? Like enough dirt where like two donkeys can carry. For him, he's going to bring some of the soil of this God. And he said that I will not ever make a burnt offering to him, to another God. But I will worship Yahweh. And so it shows right away that the work of his belief is to worship God. And in, in, in just in, in any way that he can. And the second thing is this. Look at verse 18. And he says this, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of, of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. He realizes that he is going to have to go back home. He's going to have to go back to, to, to involved in his old life. He's going to have to go into this temple with his master. And his master is going to be on his arm. And when his master bows down in worship of this false god, he is going to bow down also. He doesn't want to do it. He knows it's wrong, but he will do it anyway. He is caught between the reality of this living, loving, healing God and his old life, this life lived away from this living, loving, and healing God. It would seem that when we begin to do the work of faith and belief, we are going to run into the mess that really is our life. The mess that we live in. Our old ways will be revealed for what they are, and we're going to have to take a long, hard look at them and begin to see them differently, but we cannot escape that old life completely. Anyone trying to follow Jesus is going to come to the point of asking the question, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to handle this? Naaman is going to compromise his newfound belief. He already knows. He's like, listen, I'm going to go back. I'm going to mess up. And I hope that God forgives me. And maybe, maybe he shouldn't. Maybe we think, no, man, what are you doing? God has just healed you and you're going to do that? You're going to go back and worship this false God? You're going to bow down to him? Yeah, maybe you're not burning, or giving burnt offerings, but you are going to bow to a false God after you have just experienced what you've experienced? And I think if he was here today, we would, we would say, well, he doesn't have salvation at all. Or maybe he would just call him some backslidden God follower. Maybe. But here's what we know. Following God... Following Jesus, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's not easy to live in this world and follow God and Jesus. Some people, some people, they meet 
God for the first time through Jesus, and they come out of the gate running hard and fast, and they're just like, just just whooping it up, and everything falls, goes away, all that bad stuff, and they're just like, whoa, and then they slow down, and then they trip up, and then they realize that this is not so much a sprint, but a marathon, and some people come out of the gate really slow, and you don't even see any change, and they just take little baby steps, and they're just kind of going along, and, and so we have these people that race right out, we have these people that come out slow but 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 here's the thing we have to start somewhere Naaman begins with the most important thing he recognizes his own brokenness and he asks for forgiveness he asks for forgiveness in the context of him compromising his faith He knows how hard it's going to be. He knows it's wrong and it's breaking his heart. And he asks God to forgive him. He begins to take one step at a time. He begins to do the work of belief. Now, Paul, Paul likes to to talk about this whole idea in Romans. Turn to Romans and, and let's kind of bring it into the New Testament for us. Romans chapter 12. Uh, Verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The first work, as was with the general, it is with us. It focuses on worship, that we would present ourselves, our entire self, as a living sacrifice to God, that our whole life would be lived as a, as a, a testament of gratitude to what God has done and what God is doing in our life. That worship would consist of us falling flat on our face in awe and reverence of God to, to standing up and following Jesus as an act of worship. And the second thing he says is this begin to think correctly. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Begin to think correctly about yourself, about your life, about God, and about Jesus. Don't be conformed to the things of this world. Don't let the things of this world suck you in. Don't let the gods of this world suck you in and pull your focus off the one true God. Don't let something remove God as ultimate in your life and be replaced with whatever else it may be. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be renewed by the the transformation, the, the, the changing I mean, be changed by the renewing of your mind, of how you think. Your thinking, our thinking needs to be turned inside out. We need to begin to realize what God has done, what God is doing, what God wants to do. The God of life, the God of love, the God that heals, the God who is restoring back to wholeness all that is broken. This is the God that we need to focus on. This is the God that we need to begin to think about and allow that to transform who we are and what we focus on. And and, and what does it look like, though? How do we know this thing is actually happening? We begin to recognize 
that in our life, everyone here, not just back then, but everyone here, we begin to recognize that we are all involved in every day of our lives, compromises of our faith, a compromise of our belief. To think that we have arrived, to think that, that the old life won't in some way impact our new life is, is both naive, it's dumb, and, and, and it's dangerous. We have to be aware of those things that are creeping in to this new life. The compromises that we are making. That we all bow down in some way, shape, or form to another God. Whether it's the God of ourselves, the God of money, the God of power, the God of stuff. That we all in some way, man, we, we fall short of the glory of God, all of us. We are all guilty in some way of injustice, of indifference, of poor choices, of living outside of the harmony that Jesus has for us. It's no use in pretending that we don't live a compromised life or think that we could just go cold turkey with everything. You ever take like a New Year's resolution? You quit everything. And then by February, you're back to everything. Why do we think it different in our spiritual walk? We need to begin to think correctly, to own up to our own brokenness. That when we would give in to the pressures of this world, that we give in to the pressures of our own brokenness, that we find ourselves compromising our faith, compromising our belief, we need to do as the general did. And we need to go and ask God for forgiveness. He knew he was going to mess up. He's like, listen, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to have to bow down to this dude with this master of mine. And, and I'm sorry. And the, the, um, Elisha's response, I, I think in the original text, it, it, it says, you loser. You half-hearted wannabe God follower who is not uh, who is ungrateful for what God has done for you. I joke. It's not what Elisha said. He said this to him. Go in peace. Because he saw that there was a change in this guy's heart. He knows eventually that when the heart changes, the outside changes too. And he says, go in peace. I know you're not going to do it perfectly, but go in peace. You are going to mess up. Go in peace. And I believe that for us, those are God's words to us and for us who begin to do the work of belief, to begin to recognize that we are broken, to begin to get our thinking in line with God from the revelation of who God is through Jesus. He tells us, go in peace. Those words are for us who have a desire to follow Jesus. I mean, deep down inside, desire to follow Jesus from the heart. And, we, and, and our desire is to, to follow him more and more closely every day. And we stumble and we fall and we pick ourselves back up and we say, I'm sorry. And the words of God are, go in peace. Go in peace. That's why Jesus told when he was asked, well, how do we pray? And part of that prayer was, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And this is a prayer that we need to pray over 
and over again from the heart. This is not a license to be a screw-up all the time. This is you doing the work of belief, uh, asking God to reveal that junk that just should not be there. And you take it one step at a time. And one step at a time. Knowing that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That he utters the words over you. Go in peace. Go in peace. The work of belief is to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. The work of belief is that that truth will begin to change your heart. And a changed heart changes lives, families, communities, towns. A changed heart who believes in Jesus will eventually change this world. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would take these words seriously. That this is not um, an open invitation to mess up and and do things our way, but that we would press into you, God, knowing that we are going to make mistakes, but we still have the heart and the desire to follow you, to do the work of belief in your son, that that belief would change who we are and change our lives. God, I pray that when we do mess up and we just sit back, we say, I can't do this anymore, I'm not good enough, that that we would put to rest those words that are not from you, but from the enemy, and that you would whisper those words in our ears, go in peace, and that we would experience and know the peace of the living God through Jesus Christ. So Lord, we, we give you the glory that you love on us, you forgive us, that we don't have to earn your, your salvation, that you just open your arms and give it freely. But God, let's not, help us not to take that lightly. Help us not to take that lightly. Amen.